Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field, the podcast where we share your student affairs stories from fresh perspectives to seasoned experts. This is season two, Critical and Crisis Conversations, featuring a special COVID-19 and higher education miniseries. This podcast is brought to you by NASPA, and I'm Jill Creighton, your SA Voices from the Field host. Hey, SA Voices listeners, happy Thursday to you. It is now officially the end of May, and I hope that those of you on semesters have wound up nicely, and those of you on quarters, you're making the final push to the end of your quarters. We're releasing a little bit of a different type of episode today. Originally, on May 14th, NASPA had conducted a, a rapid response webinar that featured three panelists talking about the new Title IX rule that was released by the U.S. Department of Education in early May. This webinar was facilitated by Dr. Jill Dunlap, who is the Senior Director of Research Policy and Civic Engagement for NASPA. She will kind of sound like the host in this episode, and the panelists were William, Bill Kidder, Wanda Swan, and myself. So you're going to hear our voices a little bit inverted from how you might be used to hearing them, and you're going to hear references to multiple Jills, so apologies in advance if that gets confusing. So I want to tell you a little bit about Bill and Wanda. William Bill Kidder has more than a dozen years of management experience in California public universities, including in compliance, student affairs and academic affairs, and whistleblower Title IX, etc. Mr. Kidder's scholarship focuses on racial and gender equality in higher education and connects social science, law, and policy. His critique of the Trump administration's proposed Title IX regulation for the standard of evidence appears in the Journal of College and University Law. Kidder's recent works on Title IX and the Prevention of Faculty-Student Sexual Harassment in Academia, co-authored with Professor Nancy Cantalupo, appears in the UC Davis Law Review, the Utah Law Review, and the Journal of Legal Education. Mr. Kidder also publishes research related to affirmative action, campus racial climate, and equitable admissions criteria, including in the Stanford Law Review and the California Law Review. His works were cited in dozens of amicus briefs in Grutter v. Bollinger and Fisher v. University of Texas, and in Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in Shuet v. Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action. Mr. Kidder is a past board member of the Asian Pacific Americans in Higher Education, and Bill received his Juris Doctorate and a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Wanda Swan is a nationally recognized higher education professional and the founder and executive director of the Swan Center for Advocacy and Research Incorporated, a Georgia-based 501c3 that prioritizes survivors of violence who identify as Black and or African American. She's been embedded in the anti-violence movement for over 12 years and has worked in both collegiate and community nonprofit spaces as a survivor advocate, preventionist, speaker, technical assistance provider, and scholar activist. An active presence on national platforms, Wanda is the co-founder and current co-facilitator of Campus Advocacy and Prevention Professionals Association, also known as CAPA, the country's first national professional organization for campus-based anti-violence professionals. She also co-founded and currently chairs NASPA's Sexual and Relationship Violence Prevention Education and Response Knowledge Community. And lastly, she is currently leading a national pandemic safety planning working group with anti-violence professionals across the country to create pandemic-specific protocols and guidance to ensure anti-oppressive, trauma-informed support to survivors during COVID-19. So that's our panel today. I hope you enjoyed the dialogue.
It's a pleasure to have all of you here with us today. We had over 1,500 people register for this rapid response webinar, which is indicative of really the emerging crisis we're all feeling on our campuses in uh, absorbing these new regulations. Let me just say to start off that, uh, as I said in my email to our membership around this, um, it's virtually unconscionable that Department of Education has released these regulations with such a short time frame to be implemented. In the midst of all that's going on for us to support our students in the midst of this pandemic, for us to be in a position to have to implement the complexity of these regulations within three months um, um, while all of our staff essentially are working remotely is a huge, huge lift. The department has been very clear, however, that uh, come August 14th, that they expect these regulations to be in place. So we've got a lot of work to do, and our panelists today are, um, will give us uh, a first glimpse at some of the lift we have facing us. We, of course, have substantial challenges with not just the timing, but with some of the provisions of the regulations. But this is the work that we will do, um, we, as we always do it. We will do it in the service of our students um, and survivors on campus who are struggling with sexual violence and sexual assault to deal to build fair and equitable processes. So um, this is the first of many efforts that we will make to try to help our campuses wrap their heads around this and to be prepared best as possible for that August 14th delivery. So thanks for being here. I think we're going to have a robust conversation. And I'm going to turn it over to Jill Dunlap and our uh, NASPA staff who's going to moderate the uh, three outstanding panelists uh, in this conversation. So enjoy. And Jill, I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. My name is Jill Dunlap, and I'm the Senior Director for Research, Policy, and Civic Engagement at NASPA. I've been at NASPA a little over four and a half years and feel really grateful to belong to an organization that um, is so committed to this issue and has been since I started. So um, with that in mind, I will um, ask our panelists to join us. Um, I will let them all introduce themselves, but please know that we brought together experts in the field that represent a wide range of perspectives on Title IX, um, coming from a variety of backgrounds and representing the very professionals across campus who intersect with Title IX and whose roles are responsible primarily for guiding students through these processes. So we're very, very fortunate during this um, terribly stressful time for all of us um, as we are digesting the new rules to have these three and we um, very much appreciate their time this afternoon. So with that, I will um, ask Jill if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself first. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Jill Creighton. I use she, hers pronouns. And in my day job, I serve as Associate Vice President of Student Affairs and Dean of Students at Washington State University. My portfolio includes uh, student conduct, housing and residence life, Dean of Students Student Care Case Management, which also encompasses respondent support services and survivor support services, uh, and then also fraternity and sorority life. Uh, for NASPA, I'm also the voice of the NASPA podcast, Essay Voices from the Field. We just dropped our second episode today, if you get a chance to check that out. And we'll be releasing this webinar as a podcast episode as well, uh, serving on the Public Policy Division for Region 5. And then in my past, I was also a president of the Association for Student Conduct Administration. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, Bill, do you mind introducing yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm uh, William Kidder, he, him, uh, uh, pronouns. Uh, I'm a special assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I also do uh, volunteer research at the Civil Rights Project at UCLA. I've spent uh, the last 15 years in student affairs, academic affairs, and compliance uh, at public universities in California, mostly within the University of California system. Uh, and I also do a fair amount of uh, research and publication 
uh, in the space between law and social science. So that includes several recent articles related to Title IX and faculty student sexual harassment, for example. Uh, but everything I'm going to say today, I'm not purporting to represent the views of the uh, University of California administration. Great, thank you. And last but not least, Wanda, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Wanda Swan, and I am the founder and executive director of the Swan Center for Advocacy and Research. We are a Georgia-based 501c3 uh, that prioritizes survivors of violence who identify as Black and or African American. I am also um, a higher ed professional. I have, oh gosh, maybe 13, 14 years under my belt. Don't want to date myself. Um, and I have been embedded within the anti-violence movement uh, for the entirety of that time. Uh, I am also um, proud to be the um, chair of the uh, NASPA Sexual and Relationship Violence Prevention Education and Response, Casey. I'm so glad I was able to say all that in one breath. That was a worry. Um, and I'm also the... Um, I'm also the co-facilitator for Campus Advocacy and Prevention Professionals Association um, and a KC publisher um, and author of, of some of, I would like to think, uh, some pertinent topics that have come out across the last couple of, of years. Um, we've been able to create some really good conversations around that. Um, other than that, what I will say as a disclaimer today is that I have a pet who likes to um, be very active. And uh, as my grandmother would like to say, uh, sometimes she shows out in front of company. So if you hear uh, some strange sounds, just know that it's not me and I'm fine and it is just uh, my pet. So thank you. Thank you, Wanda. It's the times we're living in, right? Um, well, I'm so grateful to all of you for being here today. And I know that you all could recite the 2000 or so pages verbatim and that you've been studying it. Um, but really, I would like us to start out, if we could, focusing really um, on some high level thoughts that you all have. Um, and so I'm wondering if, um, and we can start with Jill and then um, head over to William and then Wanda, and we'll mix it up as we go along. But I'm wondering if we could start by having you um, tell us what you think from the student affairs perspective was the biggest surprise in the final rule um, that you didn't anticipate. Um, we've had a long time now to digest the um, the proposed rule and um, knowing that it was coming and, you know, for a while it was, you know, next week, next week, next week. Um, and now it's finally here. So now that you've had some time to take a look at it at a high level, what what was the most surprising thing for you? There were a couple of things that stood out to me that were uh, either highly directive or highly flexible. And I think we saw some of that in the proposed rule itself. Uh, but primarily, the, the one major thing that stood out to me was the expectations around direct cross. Um, and I think we had, we had anticipated a lot of that, but uh, it brought to light a lot of technical questions I think that we're all going to have around what happens if we have a non-participatory party. Uh, either, either as a witness or as a party themselves and how that will impact their ability to provide information uh, in a live hearing and things like that. Uh, other things that stood out to me as a surprise were the explicit rights of parents for our adult students, particularly around the ability to trigger um, an investigation or a complaint for an institution 
when the person who experienced the alleged behavior may not necessarily want that for themselves. So that's, I think, an interesting component. Um, and then the other one that I thought was a good surprise was the explicit uh, instruction that we can consolidate complaints into one procedure if we need to. For example, if there are uh, multiple students involved in one situation, or if there are multiple complaints against the same respondent, uh, that information is in there that we can, in fact, make that one procedure. Great. Thank you so much, Joe. I'll turn it over to you, Ari. Uh, my sort of big picture surprise, if you will, is the lack of surprise. Um, and by, by that, I mean, uh, if you look at this holistically, uh, it was surprising to some how little the public comment period, the public comments, the 125,000 public comments and the direction and the, the contours of those comments, how little that made a difference in the final rakes as compared to the, the ones that were proposed, you know, uh, 15 months ago or, or more. So, um, uh, I was I was troubled by the sort of lack of evidence-based sensibilities that underlied that approach, um, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. But in the back of my mind, you know, I was perhaps hoping against hope that that uh, evidence and uh, the direction of public comments would matter more. I think it is something that this will take a while to unfold. Uh, I have a, a colleague, uh, Nancy Cantalupo, who is doing a um, a project that's basically like a, an open source catalog of all of the public comments. Uh, and if any folks are interested in that, they can connect with her about it. Uh, but the point is that it will take a considerable time to inventory in a systematic and objective way the nature and contour of all of those public comments. But in broad strokes, we know that they're probably 10 to one or more, uh, uh, the ratio would be highly critical of the US Department of Education changes. And that has had, uh, at least thus far, a little impact on the final regs uh, with the caveat that, you know, who knows what uh, litigation will bring tomorrow and, and so on. But as of today, that was my biggest surprise. Great, thank you. Wanda? Yeah, I think that um, both Jill and William both made some really great points. I I agree that I think surprise is um, not the word that I that I felt. I can just I can honestly say uh, <laughs> when I first read it, and and this is me, you know, a, a, another small disclaimer. I'm coming specifically from um, the aspect of of an, of an executive director um, who works specifically uh, with victim advocates and who works to support um, to helps to support them in their journey and, and trying to figure out what this all means for them as well. And so I don't think that there were any real surprises because we've had the NPRM for quite some time and we've had these conversations, you know, Kappa has talked about it, um, the NASPA sexual relationship violence KC has, has written about it. And so I don't think, I think disappointment is where I'm sitting. And I think that, you know, overall it's coming from this space as advocates. Um, I think the largest surprise was of course, uh, or disappointment was the narrowing of the definitions with sexual harassment. Um, I think that 
there is also some disappointment that I have within looking at the scope of jur- jurisdiction. Specifically as an advocate, I, I feel that, that there are specific types of violence and incidents that occur within our university community that is very uh, specific um, to location, is very specific to what we would deem as activities, right? If we're talking about study abroad, if we're talking about off-campus dwellings, if we're talking about spring break or winter formal and things of that nature where there is no uh, quote-unquote ownership from the university in some way of that particular space, we know that there are peaks and there are ebbs and flows and valleys of when and how violence happens within um, some of those spaces and to be able to kind of literally sift through um, it feels kind of like it's invalidating to survivors' experiences. Um, and then the question that I have is where are we sifting it to, right? Because if those are no longer considered to be um, able to be recognized under Title IX in that way, and there is a different structure that has to be constructed, how do we get there before like August is right here? So I think that that is one of the largest um, I think implementation, again, um, is, is an issue. And I think overall, just a lack of uh, trauma-informed consideration for the adjudicative spaces. We knew this. Like Jill said, we, we saw this, but it, it's, it's concerning. Thank you. This is all really interesting and so fascinating to hear from each of you and your different perspectives. Um, William, I wonder if we might start with you in terms of um, what you think um, within the rule as you view it represents the greatest um, challenge for student affairs practitioners. Um, So there are several candidates for that, but for me, (laughs) the greatest challenge I think would be around uh, cross-examination. So this is one of the areas where uh, there there are a set of uh, judicial beliefs that are in some court cases and that are cited by uh, the DeVos Department of Education that that at bottom uh, are not evidence based. So they're they're you know there's this quote and it's acknowledged both in the final regs and in the uh, notice of of public rulemaking that this this notion about cross examination being the the greatest engine for ascertaining the truth um, that idea, the seed corn for that idea is, I don't want to nerd out too much with you, but it, it's kind of a revealing example. Um, that that originates from Wigmore's treatise on evidence. And what folks may be less appreciative of is more than any other 20th century source, Wigmore's treatise on evidence is, is responsible for propagating uh, rape myths about uh, women lying and there are some very ugly and again non-evidence-based aspects to that whole um, uh, worldview, um, and this harkens back to that earlier era of of rape mythology that, in some ways, we have partly overcome, um, but that uh, that lingers. And so um, uh, that both operationalizing cross-examination on a practical level, and then just the fact of the imposition of that rule in total um, is, I think, the most challenging thing for me. Thank you. 
Wanda, do you mind tackling it from your perspective? Sure. Um, I think if we're talking about challenges, uh, I I think there's so many, um, but one that has kept come kept coming up for me, especially um, I feel like I have since this has come out, I felt like it's just like been a bowl of alphabet soup, and I've just been like, give me all of it. But um, I think that one of the things that's missing here um, that could be a challenge for practitioners is we're talking about a system that could very well be argued continues to further marginalize our most vulnerable populations. I think a lot of the conversations that when we were talking about the NPRMs and uh, we were having conversations about, you know, oh, this is good for our um, students on campus that identify as dot, 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 because this protects dot, dot, dot. And it's this conversation around um, equity that I feel like that is um, convenient. Um, but I don't think it has a lot of meat to it. And so I think that in order for us to really ensure uh, that I worry, this is what I worry. I worry that one party will come during a cross-examination with a high-powered attorney, and I worry that another party will be appointed to a campus activities director. And then they're going to have to have a cross-examination. I'm worried about what that means for training. I'm worried about just the legalistic approach um, and the mirroring of uh, our criminal justice system um, and the language. And I think that those are some of the things that I think will present challenges because in a lot of ways, this is not how we have operated um, before, even before the NPRMs. Great. Thank you. That Clearly, there was not just one challenge, <laughs> so my, my question was misworded. Um, Jill, do you mind answering what you think the biggest challenge is from your perspective? Well, like my good colleagues here, I don't see just one. Um, there's a couple that stood out to me, though, uh, in particular. Uh, on the note of advisors, having to provide an advisor as an institution is a new requirement, and we all need to figure out what that looks like for our communities and who those people are, how they're trained, as Wanda mentioned. And that's going to be an interesting consideration for how that creates and deflates equity at the same time, depending on how that presents itself in a space. Uh, but something else that uh, has been really sticking with me is the balance that we're going to need to strike with our human resources colleagues, where that necessarily hasn't occurred before. Uh, some campuses already do this, but many don't with the uh, standard of evidence. So we see that you can be either a preponderance or clear and convincing, so long as it's the same standard in your employment practices. And there's some interesting conflicts there that I could foresee arising with uh, especially uh, unionized, uh, unionized procedures where employees already have something that's uh, clearly built in for their protections, for our protections really, that really just look different for students. And so, that could raise the standard for some and lower it for others. I think that's going to be an interesting one where uh, HR hasn't not always not traditionally been at the table. It is time to have our HR partners at the table if that hasn't happened already. Uh, and then the other one that I'm thinking about is um, 
how how we work through FERPA in some of these basic pieces. Uh, it says pretty explicitly in the new rule that advisors are to have a copy of everything that a student gets. And I know that in practice, many institutions will provide a copy to the student or allow the student access. And then it's the student's responsibility to work with their advisors to get that information. So now we actually have an interesting tension where we might have to clear FERPA waivers real fast in areas that we may not have before. Um, so there's those minor things that are challenges, um, and then there are some of those bigger pieces. Great, thank you. Um, I, my next question, I'm uh, going to direct at you first, Wanda, if you don't mind. Um, I'm wondering, and, and we can answer this in a couple different ways, so however you see fit, but um, what, what you are hearing is the first step that institutions are taking, or what should be the first step that institutions are taking in trying to implement this? We've had the, um, the proposed rule for roughly a week. Um, and so what are you hearing from colleagues that, you know, they're they're beginning to do other than, you know, sitting by the fireside and reading the, the full 2000 pages. But um, and, and like I said, you can phrase that in terms of what you're hearing is happening versus, you know, what might be um, some good things that institutions could do uh, in terms of first steps. Right. Awesome. I think that um, I think I'll, I'll tackle both because I, I've definitely had. This, these regulations inspire a lot of co communication with your colleagues, right? Um, and so I think that um, some of the conversations that have been had are around ways in which to ensure that there are that there are advocates and there are anti-violence professionals who are also sitting in these spaces. And I think that that goes hand in hand with with my uh, answering of what are some of the first things. The first thing is read, read something, read, read stuff, uh, read all the things. Um, and then also uh, sur surround yourself with people who understand the language. Um, but I also think that there needs to be a larger understanding that um, Title IX is still the floor. Right. And we still need to reach for the ceiling. And so in order for us to reach for the ceiling, we have to make sure that our task forces, you know, our groups of folks who are bustling down the halls with copies under our, our, our armpits. Like we ought to make sure that there are every, that everyone's around the table. Um, I, I don't think that it is too much to say that there are definitely uh, that this is a document that. Creates large issues in terms as it relates to trauma-informed um, support and care and space. Um, and there are going to be some gaps that are going to have to be talked through. Again, this is the floor. And I think it's important for us to remember that if you are, if you have a task force now and you don't have anti-violence professionals at your table, you're failing already, right? You have to trust the experts who are on this and you have to also understand that in this moment, disagreement is a good thing because what that means is that someone is thinking about students who have not yet been considered. And so I would think that this is time for us to, I think the days of who owns this and who owns that, that's done. That is over. Uh, I think it's time for transparency in a huge way that really centers our students and is also not going to cause further harm. 
Thank you so much, Wanda. I really appreciate your point about um, disagreement being good. So I, I thank you for saying that. And um, even while we were digesting it within the NASPA staff, we were saying, you know, I'm just not reading that the same way that you're reading it. And so if we as professionals who understand this language are struggling with how that would play out in reality, I think um, it's it's fair to say that that will happen at the campus level as well and, and among professionals whose roles are very closely tied to this issue. So thank you for that. Um, William, I'll ask you if you have um, thoughts on that same question. Sure. So um, uh, I think I'll, I'll just start out kind of with an obvious point in, in terms of first steps. It's kind of been covered to some extent already, and that is the Herculean challenge of bringing together all the right stakeholders to implement this by August 14th in the middle of a pandemic. So that's working with uh, Title IX and HR and uh, working with uh, victim advocates and uh, folks in academic affairs, faculty senate, academic senate folks, with the added challenge that many of our faculty, you know, are on nine or 10 month appointments. And during the summer, they're supposed to be away doing their research. Uh, so this is really a, a exceedingly difficult task to do to bring, bring the right people together to try and uh, harmonize as much these various interests and, and bring together some uh, interim policies by uh, August 14th. Um, in terms of a, did you also ask about the, an area of a uh, win? I, Jill, I, I or, did not, but you can oh, absolutely, okay. if there's a okay. win in here to be found, we should share it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, you know, you kind of take your wins where you can. Uh, and uh, so one uh, modest win uh, for student affairs practitioners, uh, and Jill alluded to this a little bit, is with respect to the rule around the standard of evidence, uh, the uh, the proposed regulations tilted the playing field much more in trying to impose higher burdens on universities that wanted to use the preponderance of evidence standard. Um, and the final regulations leave that more as a, a, a choice. So given the high uh, cumulative costs about the standard of evidence, uh, and I can get to that later, um, it is important that institutions uh, are not as strongly being uh, steered uh, toward the clear and convincing standard as they were under the proposed regs. Great. And Jill, do you have thoughts on what you're hearing that is, you know, involved in people's institutions taking the first steps or where, you know, you might think would be a, a logical first place for them to begin? Yeah, I think it's just so important to sit down with your policies and side by side them with the new regulations. And if um, if we start there, then we're going to be able to examine where shifts need to happen and how to make those things happen and uh, completely concur with uh, my colleagues in terms of making sure that you have the right folks at the table. Uh, your general counsel is a critical asset at this point in time, knowing what we know and what we don't know, uh, and especially what we don't know in this scenario. Uh, there's, there's a lot that is... Uh, subtly written and there's a lot that is a clause with the maze and the musts and the shalls and hows and um, I think those are very very critical components to add to the picture and then I'll add as we were talking about wins um, one of the things that I think is important uh, is the addition of the informal resolution components so we've had challenges with mediation being a word used in 
sexual violence remediation. Um, because as we know, within mediation, there's a baseline assumption that parties share some components of blame. And we know in sexual violence cases, that's not true. So what the informal resolution components do do for us, though, is open the door officially to restorative justice. And that's something that's been being talked about and explored for a long time as a possibility, but we were never able to get true clarity on it before. Now we do have that clarity that we can look at that harm and repair model uh, in that restorative uh, paradigm. And there's some really excellent programs coming out of institutions that can help us design those programs so that we have another avenue to resolve these that doesn't necessarily involve the very robust live hearing that is occurring um, in these new regulations. So there are still alternative pathways and I want folks to breathe and remember that at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is care for students and care for humans and keep that human-centered human-centered approach, that student ethic of care at the root of what we do. So we can sit here all day long and look at technicalities, but at the end of the day, we're affecting people's lives. And that's really what we should be remembering as we read all of this. Thank you so much for that, Jill. I also very much appreciate you telling everyone to just take a, take a breath and you know that um, it is, it's a lot to digest, especially in the middle of a crisis as Kevin mentioned when we started. Um, so I wonder if I might turn it back to you um, to start, Jill, and, and talking about, um, you know, we've, we've noted that it's a it's a large document, um, it, you know, 2000 plus pages. Uh, so many of us are still, tr you know, trying to get through it all um, and then to digest that. And so my my question here centers around how do we, um, you know, as professionals, we all have different perspectives on what this might mean or you know how this might uh, take shape in terms of implementation. Like you said, how do we recenter students in this, and how are we communicating to them uh, what our campuses are doing, what changes might be um, in order, and and how are we helping students to digest this information, knowing that you know, it, you know in times past pre-COVID, we could send a large you know um, email from the president. Well, now students are getting emails from the president, you know, to talk about whether schools reopening, and so. Um, you know, the, the weight that a campus-wide email from the president might carry now in, in times of crisis might look different. So how are we um, trying to get this information uh, in, in front of students and helping them to digest it? Well, if you're a campus like ours, uh, we just finished our, our instruction for the semester on Friday. And so we don't anticipate regular enrollment again until the fall. We you know, have summer enrollment like everyone else, but the vast majority of our students are no longer um, no longer paying attention to their institution in the same way that they would in the regular academic year. So I think it's important that we think about not only telling the story of the changes to our students when they return in the fall, but also for our faculty and staff for whom we've set previous expectations. And the one big thing I think about is the drastic shift away from the responsible employee rubric that existed within the last five years and, and is now no longer. Uh, we've trained our communities to expect certain things for what will happen when they tell a person of authority. And now that person of authority does not have that same obligation under the rule that doesn't mean universities have to get rid of what they've already trained their institutions on. Again, as Wanda mentioned, that's the floor, not the ceiling. So maybe institutions do stick with their reporting requirements as they had uh, indicated previously, but maybe those are changing. And so I think that's those are the important components that students know who they can tell for safety and support, who they can tell that is confidential versus private, and who they can tell that will be formal and officially reported. 
that will be the, the biggest challenges for students. And then uh, as we were also discussing earlier, I think it's really important for us to be aware of and think about how we will or will not extend our policies when it comes to sexual assault and sexual harassment that occurs outside of the boundaries of our formal education programs and activities. Because with the new rules, study abroad comes into question. Uh, as, as Wanda mentioned, spring break activities come into question or even just things that happen um, on the weekends that might not be at our college and university campus-based activities, could be off-campus housing that's unofficial. Uh, there's all of these things that impact the guise of the educational environment that our students have come to expect that an institution will address that these regulations have now shifted to a degree. Thank you so much, Jill. I, I think that was a really important point that you made that it may not be the sort of uh, approach that we're all taking, which is, you know, to take it all in at once, but that we might have to sort of tear out what we know that they would need to know first and um, knowing who you can trust is primary among them. Um, Wanda, do you have thoughts on how we're working with students to, to, get, this, to get this new message across? Yeah, I think that um, this is, I think we have to find opportunities um, as they come up. I think that being able to, I think Jill was right. I think that at this point, students are like, okay, I'm done. Um, and now I can figure out what the rest of my life looks like. Um, excuse me one second, I have to. Excuse me. Um, I think it's important for us to understand that this is still a pandemic. And what that means is that like right outside the door. And what that means is that uh, there are going to be uh, new normals for our students as well and new priorities. And so I think it's important for us to remember that um, the priorities that we're discussing now, which greatly impact their academic experience, um, is also something that they may not be able to see in the same way right now, depending upon for a lot of students who were, who may or may not have been um, utilizing uh, the opportunities of, of, for universities to uh, supplement some issues that they may have been having, right? And so I think that uh, some of the ways that institutions can work to um, create educational opportunities, I think, again, it goes back to, to your campus experts. I think there is a narrative, there is a strategy, there is a language that universities have to come together and have to align with. And I think being able to, once that has been decided, um, which is such a tough thing to do by the August date. I think that then being able to utilize your campus experts uh, to amplify these messages within their various streams, right? If, if we're talking about Title IX folks, if we're talking about anti-violence folks, if we're talking about our HR people, I think being able to use some, uh, have opportunities for virtual learning um, in the same way that, you know, we used to send you know, the um, mandatory education that our students, our incoming students have to have, that could be another way for us to ensure that we're continuing some education and some updates so that students won't come back into, and we don't even know what, what space that is, whether it's on campus, whether it's virtual, but coming back into the academic um, atmosphere with a better understanding uh, than they do now. Great, thank you. William, thoughts on how to educate students 
Sure. Um, it is something where the the uh, nature of the challenges on semester campuses are quite different than uh, quarter campuses. Uh, most of the UC campuses are on the quarter system, as is my campus, and so we we still have another month of instruction, basically. And so it the engagement opportunities are very different from what uh, uh, Jill described a minute ago. Um, I would say that leadership communications from chancellors and presidents matter, um, even in this day of, uh, you know, a steady stream of, of email announcements on multiple important things. Uh, that that leadership tone and signaling does matter. I was very encouraged by the uh, announcement that my uh, chancellor sent out uh, several days ago. Um, I would say that it has to do with the overall relationship and the constancy of communication, so that it's important not to think about engagement in these circumstances as a kind of one-off situation, but as a ongoing set of of engagements with students, with victim advocates, et cetera, um, and students who, you know, on either side of, of input for the, the public comments, hopefully folks have those relationships on their campuses with students who have already participated in the notice of, of public uh, comment and rulemaking. Um, and so in the, the weeks ahead, uh, it's a matter of kind of building off of those cumulative relationships of, of, of trust. The one other thing I would add is, and this is consistent with, I think, something Wanda said earlier, uh, we have a number of especially vulnerable populations right now, given COVID. And so, for example, uh, if you have a survivor that you're working with who's also a DACA student, you know, we have a Supreme Court ruling expected in the next four to six weeks. And a lot of students' parents are unemployed and struggling. Um, all of these things compound on top of each other. And so um, just having a sense of uh, appreciating from a student affairs perspective, the cumulative nature of the strains and challenges that our, our students are grappling with, uh, that seems to me important. Great, thank you. So I want to circle back to um, an earlier question that I um, skipped over, but I, um, I I think is really relevant here and something that you all have touched upon. Um, but before I do, I will just let folks know that we are monitoring the questions box, um, which Jennifer mentioned to you in the technology introduction. So if you have questions, um, please do forward them over. We're trying to answer as many of those as we can. Um, since you all can't unmute yourselves, that's your primary way to connect with us and get your questions in front of the panelists. Um, so we're hoping to save um, the, the final 10 minutes or so for questions from the audience as they as they come in. So I encourage you to do that if you have them. Um, but for the panelists, and I will um, start with you, William, if it's okay. I'm wondering, um, and you all have hit on this in several different ways, but um, in what ways do you think that um, institutions, that the new regulations will change the way, or the new rule will change the way um, that uh, institutions currently um, function. And so we've talked about the idea that there might be a separate adjudication process for, uh, you know, sexual assault that we know that has occurred, but is not within the, the confines or the context of a, a institutional program or activity. Um, and, you know, you can, we can go down that rabbit hole too around like, if we don't know yet what that, how that's going to look firmly as an institution, how are we letting students know? And again, getting to Wanda's point around like, which sexual assaults matter in which contexts, um, I think will be really challenging 
to communicate. But at the high level, how do we, how do you envision that the new um, regulations will impact in current institutional processes? A uh, big picture, I would say that the mechanics of uh, hearings, there's a lot of work to be done in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, that's a, a training issue. It's sort of an institutional culture and policy issue. There's a lot to work out there, including uh, some of the interpretive questions that that uh, come out of, of the, the new guidance. There's a lot of confusion there. So I, I would say big picture, uh, in terms of how institutions function, uh, mechanics of hearings. Um, the other concern that I have kind of in terms of how higher education functions, um, this is answering the question in a different way, is I am worried about greater polarization. So the way that these new uh, regulations come out and the the way that states and institutions will map those regulations to their state laws and institutional policies, it, it's pulling in the direction of having more and more of kind of red state rules and blue state rules. And I, I think that that on balance is uh, not a good thing at all for our students overall. That's a really great point. Thank you for that. Um, Jill, do you have additional thoughts on how institutional processes will vary? Based on the yeah, the one thing that sticks out to me is uh, some institutions have started to uh, aggregate all of their conduct processes, regardless of the type of behavior, into one process, which has been a good practice. But specifically, uh, the investigatory models related to all bias and discrimination or all civil rights-based types of uh, discrimination, so whether that be related to race and ethnicity or gender or ability, uh, similar processes have been used. And that might need to shift now, depending on the model that's being adopted by a particular institution. So I think that's a big lift to come forward. Uh, as Bill mentioned, some of those mechanic pieces are going to be quite unfortunately just fiscally costly at a time when we're all a little bit fiscally nervous. So for example, uh, the requirement to do uh, recordings of all live hearings was going to require institutions to figure out some new technology and to spend some money on recording equipment. Uh, and at the same time, the permissions to uh, to spend time in live hearings in Zoom rooms is a good add for everyone involved. It allows parties to remain separate. It allows us to operate continuously in this COVID-19 teleworking community. Uh, but again, it's it's new tech for a lot of folks, and it could have disproportionate impacts on students who don't have access to Internet or stable Internet, for that matter, um, or for students who might have to do a hearing from their car. If you can imagine what that might feel like to be in such an intense type of proceeding with so much at stake and you're sitting in a parking lot of a strip mall or something like that. Um, I think those are big considerations for institutions as they look at practice and what that really means. Or even for panelists, if you run hearing boards for these processes, how are your panelists doing um, doing this type of work? Uh, but the other thing that I think about is just this essential uh, need to retrain our campus communities. And that's the biggest thing that uh, that plays out for me as I look forward with this removal, as I mentioned before, of the responsible employee language, we have a need now, I think, to provide the tools for all types of faculty and staff who might receive reports that 
They might be now the person providing support, whether or not they had wanted to or intended to. And so we still want those folks to get students directly to our advocates, absolutely. And at the same time, we've heard for a long time that some of our faculty and staff don't feel comfortable having to report forward. But now we have, I think, uh, a need to provide them the tools on how to sit with a student in that really difficult environment. And that's not something I don't think we've done uh, as an industry before. That's such a fascinating point, Jill. I really um, love that you brought that up, that, you know, it used to be that you could just sort of pass them forward to the Title IX coordinator. And so now having to, um, how to understand disclosure in a different way will be really important as we move forward. And they still um, can absolutely pass yeah. forward um, that information. But if they choose not to pass forward that information, we want to make sure that I think folks are equipped well to understand what that means. Yeah, absolutely. That it's not either pass forward or no action, right? That there can still be an um, empathetic response in the moment. Um, that's just really wonderfully put. Thank you. Uh, Wanda, do you have thoughts on this question? I I think that both Bill and Jill actually uh, hit all the, po the points that I had in my notes. Um, I think that one that I kind of turn over um, just to layer with that, uh, to pick it back off, Jill, is, uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, ensuring adequate training for our adjudicated folks around, uh, in some cases, cases that they've never, or specific incidents of violence that they've never had training on before. Um, that's something that needs a little bit more massaging and a little bit more understanding um, as well. Uh, I think that's the only piece. I think y'all did a great job. And so I don't want to spend time um, rehashing what was already so eloquently stated. Great. Thank you. Well, and I, I think we've hit on a lot of the other topics that I've heard that people are talking about on other webinars and, you know, within um, different circles of professionals um, and practitioners who intersect with this um, this issue on campus, um, including, you know, the changes to responsible employees, um, as well as the need for additional training and really looking at that through a new lens, given the, the new rules. So thank you all so much for your really thoughtful um, discussion of those points throughout the, the questions that we've asked. Um, I do have one just for you, uh, William, if you don't mind, um, and that's whether or not you've done a lot of work on, um, you know, standards of evidence. And so my question is whether or not you think that we'll see a lot of changes in that realm um, in terms of the standard of evidence used in, in institutions, Title IX cases, or if given your earlier comments, you think there was enough leeway that, um, that the door has been left wide open enough or just open enough that institutions will still be able to maintain um, the standard of evidence that they had been using prior to the rule. Uh, thank you, Jill. Uh, this is an area where the public comments that I submitted, and I, I kind of I wrote basically a whole article about this. It's in the last issue of the Journal of College and University Law. Folks can find it on my SSRN uh, page. But basically, the way that the the final regulations are written, the the policy choice about the preponderance of evidence versus the clear and convincing evidence standard, that will be an important choice. And so um, a couple points that I would highlight for folks as you're working with your campus council and your provost and vice chancellors of student affairs, et cetera, some uh, policy uh, considerations to think about in evaluating where to go uh, with that choice. Um, 
is is this there there is a strong consensus among scholars that the preponderance of evidence standard is the standard that across uh, hundreds and thousands of cases if you're looking at aggregate outcomes rather than uh, outcomes in an individual case that from that lens about cumulative impact the preponderance of evidence standard is the is the standard that overall will result in the fewest cumulative errors. So in, in any adjudicative system, there will be what are called false positive errors and false negative errors. Um, that, that fact is unavoidable. Uh, but by applying a more stringent standard, uh, uh, the clear and convincing evidence standard, it's kind of halfway toward the criminal law uh, beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And so that higher standard shifts the burden. Um, and as a consequence, most scholars, both uh, evidence law scholars and folks who've looked at uh, this question uh, as applied to real settings with natural experiment evidence, have found that the preponderance of evidence standard results in uh, fewer errors cumulatively. And so if we value each of our students equally as we should, and if we value uh, error avoidance on a cumulative uh, basis, then I would recommend to folks uh, to advocate for the preponderance of evidence standard on their campus. Um, it's also used widely, uh, for example, in physician misconduct cases, in civil rights cases, uh, in research misconduct uh, cases, and in, in other settings. So it, it outside of the Title IX space, it is also uh, the standard that applies in not just legal proceedings, but in other kind of high stakes administrative proceedings. Great, thank you. Um, so we've had a lot of questions come in, many of which you've already answered. So thank you all for that. Um, one uh, question that came in um, that I thought was interesting um, that I wondered if any of you feel comfortable answering um, is whether or not any of you feel comfortable talking about the bright line that seems to have been established between the Title IX coordinator um, and the investigator or the decision maker in terms of what that will look like um, functionally as um, institutions change their processes. When you read through the regulations, do we think that's going to be a significant lift in terms of making those distinctions um, based on what's currently in existence on many campuses, or is this sort of something that um, should be a pretty easy, an easy fix? Um, I would just add quickly from folks in the UC system I've been consulting with that mm -hmm. operationalizing these new regulations is difficult with respect to the notion of, uh, they're um, advancing the notion of not having a single investigator and not being judge and jury, but the, the weight that's now being put on the hearing officer can, under certain interpretations, take on more of those uh, responsibilities in a confusing way. So there is some internal tension there that is something that Title IX folks are, are struggling with and working through. 
Well, I think that's such an institutionally specific question. Uh, there are some institutions for whom these bright lines have existed for a while and for some for whom this will be brand new. So I think it's hard to paint with a broad brush um, on this particular question, but suffice it to say, if this is new for you, there's a lot of institutions who have been working under those types of models, and I would strongly encourage you to reach out and lean on folks that are already adopting those types of um, separated trifectas, if you will. Wanda, do you have anything else that you have thoughts on regarding the the different um, way that they have operationalized how these hearings will go? No, I think it's um, very kind of clear cut where I stand similar uh, to Jill. I think that there are some institutions who have been already operating where there is one office that does this and other areas. Um, I think that I think that this idea of the single investigator, the one and done is, um, I just thought it was just interesting language uh, in general. Of course, there are still some institutions who do that. I, I worry about, you know, I worry about the community colleges. I worry about uh, those other systems who are just not able um, to do. Uh, worry about those those systems with very limited resources, um, very limited staffing. Um, yeah, so that that's just where I'm going. I think I think it's just going to be, you know, um, I'm southern, so it's just going to be a hard road to hoe. Uh, but harvest is coming. So great. Well, I think we have time for one more question. And again, I know it's really difficult to to sort of take these one-off questions, knowing how large this document is, and um, that no one has committed it to memory. So if you don't feel comfortable answering, this is um, completely uh, fine. But one of the other questions that came through. Um, we're talking about the, which you all have hit on in, in various aspects, but the costs that this will mean for institutions in terms of, you know, potentially providing an advisor, um, training someone to be that, um, you know, the, the person who's in the, in the hearing making um, determinations about what can and cannot be asked. And so do you envision or have you heard um, of, or, or, or is it a good idea in your opinion that, um, institutions might try to reduce costs, especially given the budget cuts that are coming, given the COVID crisis, in terms of having a um, like regional center, that, you know, where one investigator would do investigations for multiple campuses or sort of compiling um, or combining resources in that way um, to make the costs associated with implementation um, lower for an individual institution. Uh, especially for, uh, you know, small private colleges, for example, uh, it may make sense to have a kind of consortium model where you share uh, processes and investigators and hearing panels uh, for uh, institutions that have sort of similar profiles and missions. Uh, there are efficiency, even before this, those, those issues have been uh, in discussion, you know, uh, for some time within Title IX and civil rights community. So um, I, I can see that there are some uh, advantages to that, even if it comes with some risks as well. I concur with Bill. I think that there are opportunities for institutions to become really great collaborative partners in this area and lean on each other uh, in ways that we kind of already do professionally, but for more formalized and to acknowledge that there are certain risks that come along with that, uh, particularly around, you know, nobody knows our institutional cultures better than we do, than, than those mm -hmm. of us that are on our campuses. 
particularly in the way that our, our students perceive information and can share information properly. Uh, but also there's, I think you run some risks when you remove that decision-making or share that decision-making. Uh, you're going to have to look at your policies together. You're going to have to look at uh, your values together and your training together. So, uh, but, but the work has to get done no matter, no matter how that looks, um, it has to get done. So whatever we can do to support each other is good. I am uh, going to utilize my right to not answer that question. That's totally fine. Um, and like it, it's, a, it's an interesting question about, you know, and again, speculative and whether or not institutions will go down that road, but understanding the, the significant costs that institutions are um, facing in terms of implementation and knowing that that's happening during a very, um, a time of very constrained budget. So. Well, um, and it's, it's well, not right yeah, for every okay. institution. I think we have to say that too, right? That, that is not yeah. the right choice for many institutions. So um, we can speculate a lot on a lot of these questions, but at the end of the day, every institution that's listening and struggling with these regulations is going to have to make the decision that is best for their students and, and their community. Yeah. Can I add one thing briefly? There, there is a, a question about cost kind of at a different level. Uh, yeah. And the, the proposed regulations and now the final regs have a cost benefit analysis and a, a kind of a cumulative financial impact analysis. I think that's something that will get worked out in the courts. And so the, the question is, are the uh, estimates from the U.S. Department of Education about cost savings, are those really estimates that are realistic? And are they essentially estimates about cost displacement, not cost savings for uh, for campuses. So, you know, as student affairs uh, practitioners, we're worried about the overall community of our, our students and staff and faculty. And so uh, I would be uh, skeptical of those uh, rosy cost savings estimates. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We are right at time. Um, before we leave, I did want to um, note that we weren't able to get to everyone's questions, but, you know, as NASPA, uh, NASPA as an association is very much committed to continuing to have this conversation as we all continue to digest this. This was incredibly helpful to get such great perspectives from so many people. And I think that's really the best way to digest all of this information, right, is to bring multiple perspectives together. And the expertise that you all bring to this issue is just unparalleled. So thank you for that. Uh, we do have two upcoming additional webinars on this topic. Uh, the one on May 27th is hosted by the Culture of Respect, and it is Identity, Power, and Sexual Citizenship, which um, I just went out and um, ordered the book on Amazon today. So um, based on a study that was done by Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan. And then um, several of you asked about training required for the use of restorative justice and sexual misconduct cases. NASPA has just published a five things brief on that very topic. Um, written by experts in the field from the Campus PRISM program, uh, David Karp and Karen Williamson. And so they um, will be hosting, or they will be um, leading that webinar on June 17th. So you can find both of those on the NASA website. We hope that you will join us for those. We appreciate the time that the panelists took today, as well as the participants to be here uh, and join NASPA for this really important conversation. So um, please let's all continue to be a resource to one another as we move forward and doing what's right for our students and keeping our campuses safe. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. This has been an episode of SA Voices from the Field, a podcast brought to you by NASPA. This show is made possible because of you, our listeners. You mean so much to us. 
If you'd like to reach the show, you can email us at savoices at naspa.org or find me on Twitter at Jill Creighton. We welcome your feedback and your topic and guest suggestions. We'd love it if you'd take a moment to tell a colleague about the show and like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. This episode was produced and hosted by Dr. Jill Creighton. That's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Dr. Chris Lewis. Guest coordination by Anna Schilter. Special thanks to Washington State University's Division of Student Affairs for your support as we create this project. Catch you next time.